I love my job. I, I love doing it. I love being right there in the center of that hurricane, you know, with this strange sorcery that we call filmmaking. When they call action, there's just this moment. When they call action, and it's you and the boom operator and the actors. And everybody else has to be quiet and sit back and they're sort of hostages to whatever's going to happen. And I love being in there in that moment and I, I never get tired of it. I think part of the magic of, of a David Fincher film set is that, you know, Dwayne or Brian's execution or dare I say performance between action and cut is just as important to David as the performance of the actor. So it's, a, it's a, actually a very egalitarian environment, you know, where everyone is, is really working hard. And I think, you, you know, when you're working in that environment, you feel, you definitely feel like you have something, you have a part to play and you have an important part to play. And it, you know, it makes, it makes the environment both intense, but, but also really rewarding. And action. Welcome back to the Art of the Shot podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from both the cinematographer and a camera operator who worked together to shoot every single episode of Mindhunter, Eric Messerschmidt, ASC, and Brian Osmond, SOC. My name is Eric Messerschmidt. I'm the director of photography on Mindhunter. did both seasons and uh, calling in from Chicago on location in quarantine. My name is Brian Osmond, and I was the A-camera operator on Mind Turner Seasons 1 and 2. Eric was nominated for an Emmy for Best Cinematography this year for his work on the show, and the two of them also teamed up recently to shoot David Fincher's first film in six years, Mank, which explores the creation of one of cinema's greatest films, Citizen Kane. Have you seen the first trailer yet? It came out less than a week ago, and the film is set to come out in just a couple months. So I'll do my best to get Eric and Brian back on the show for a deep dive into their work on the film. But in this episode, you'll get an inside view into the close working relationship they have, the techniques and thought processes behind the choices they're making on set, working with David Fincher, the importance of having a dedicated camera operator on set, especially on a David Fincher set, why there's no such thing as a B-camera bonus shot on Mindhunter, and how shots are lit and planned out for multiple cameras. We also discussed the innovative car process shooting developed on Mindhunter and how that works, the custom red digital cinema camera built for the show, the very cool things Eric did regarding lenses and art directing the optical artifacts in every shot, and why Brian prefers a fluid head over a geared head to achieve those smooth, precise shots David Fincher loves. Please enjoy our conversation. And if you're new, be sure to subscribe here and follow The Art of the Shot on social media for updates and bonus content. Links are in the episode description. So welcome, guys, to the Art of the Shot podcast. I'm really happy to be speaking with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So uh, this is the Art of the Shot, and it's not just about the art of creating shots. It's also about the art of taking your shot and cultivating a career. Eric, you were notably given a big shot when David Fincher asked you to step in as Mindhunter's director of photography in season one after the uh, other DP, Chris Probst, left. And that took you from gaffer to cinematographer. 
Can you talk to me a little bit about your journey? I imagine you aimed to be a cinematographer. So did your career path kind of go according to plan or how did you make it so, you know, you didn't uh, stay in the role of gaffer? Well, yeah, yeah, it definitely took a, took a major shift. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't actively pursuing a career as a cinematographer. I mean, I, I had been shooting, I had been shooting um, commercials and documentaries and short films and, uh, you know, I, I had always wanted to be a DP, um, but but when this opportunity um, presented itself, I, I wasn't actively looking uh, to make a major career shift. Actually, it it um, it, it just sort of uh, landed uh, in my lap, so to speak. Um, but it was definitely something that I I saw for myself and for my future. You know, um, I I was. Uh, I was always, um, you know, it was, it was, it was always my dream for sure. And it was something I was working towards, but, but I, I never expected it to happen as, as quickly as it did, uh, or certainly not in this way. Well, I, I know, you know, you've talked a bit about it in other interviews, so I, you know, I, I feel like we don't need to get too much into it, but making the switch from gaffer to DP, um, I think, you know, you have a lot of, uh, it's not necessarily, you know, a path that everybody takes. So what would you say to other DPs or aspiring DPs about what they should know to best collaborate and communicate with their gaffers? Well, I mean, I think, you know, everyone has to take their own path and everyone has to feel it out the way they want to. I, myself, um, I love being on a movie set. I just adore it. It's one of my, you know, it's like, um, it's where I feel most at home, actually. Uh, so um, I think, you know, part of my career path has been the just constant desire to be on a, on a movie set around film crew, around actors, around directors, and, um, and, and to be working. Um, so, you know, I kind of, in some, some respects, I suppose, took, took the long road. But I'm glad I did that because I, I learned a lot from people I, I otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to be around that, and, you know, it's certainly not to the extent I was around them. So I, you know, I was really fortunate to work as a gaffer for a number of fantastic cinematographers and learn from them. And, um, and they absolutely made me better at, at what I do, you know, sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, I suppose. And, uh, um, you know, I think for, for me, I, I try to, I try to think of lighting as, um, as just an extension of camera direction. And, and, you know, it's like all of our lighting decisions are informed by where we put the camera to, to a large degree. So to finally have the opportunity to, to work um, more intimately with, with the positioning of the camera, with the director and, and Brian and, and the actors, you know, think about blocking and staging uh, and allowing that deci those decisions to inform the lighting is, you know, has been an incredible experience for me. It's, it's you know, it's my favorite part of the job now. Um, but I mean, to answer your question specifically about how I communicate with the gaffer, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's like in any any creative relationship, you have to find people that you can uh, have a shorthand with and that you have shared sensibility with. And, and hopefully you don't have a lot of conversations. Um, you know, you don't have to have really deep conversations about where you're going for because they they share your point of view. So, you know, it's the same with with. Danny Gonzalez, who's been my gaffer for the last few years, and, and Brian Osmond. And, you know, we, we have enough shared sensibility and shared understanding about what we're trying to do that, that uh, we can almost complete each other's sentences, you know? Mm -hmm. what, uh, what about being a gaffer do you find contributed most, you know, meaningfully to your approach to cinematography that maybe, you know, you wouldn't have had if you just started out 
um, being a DP on smaller projects and then just built up a career, you know, moving forward from there. I think recognizing that the, that the problems cinematographers are presented with are very consistently um, the same to a large degree, you know, and it's, and it's the technique you use to solve those problems that uh, is really kind of what separates you. And, and so, you know, having, having the opportunity to watch a number of DPs solve the same types of problems in different ways over the years, you know, it, it, it's a, a quiver I can pull from, you know, um, think, yeah. And, and that's, that's definitely helpful, but also, you know, um, huge part of being a cinematographer is, is just management and, uh, you know, working with the crew and, um, and prep and, and, you know, solving those, those problems before they present themselves as problems and, you know, recognizing where you're going to have, um, shortfalls and challenges and, and trying to circumvent them. And, and, you know, the, the prep process that you go through as a, as a gaffer definitely helps with that. And, and also, you know, prepping with another DP and watching them do that, it, it, you know, certainly helps. So, um, you know, I'm glad I did it that way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine, you know, it really gave you like a very strong foundation. Um, and like you said, you know, kind of, re- uh, resources of, of seeing how, um, how to problem solve that, you know, aren't just you relying on your intuition or your personal experience of how to solve them, but learning from other masters about how they solve them. Yeah. That's, yeah. um, yeah. And also, you know, I think there's, you know, the film community and specifically the cinematography community is, is, is very social and, um, having a network of people you can call and say, hey, I've got this issue. How do I solve this issue is incredibly important. So, you know, I have, um, you know, a lot of the cinematographers I work for as a gaffer, you know, they're all very close friends of mine as well. And I routinely call them and say, hey, how, you know, how would you solve this problem? Or what would you do in this situation? Or I'm having this problem with this director. How would you address it? <laughs> Whatever, you know. Right. Um, those things, those things are, it's, it's really it's really great to have those sorts of, of uh, friends that you're, uh, available to you when you're trying to trying to trying to <laughs> solve the problems we have to have to solve. Did did that come into play on uh, season two of Mindhunter at all? Did you have like a challenge that really stumped you that you reached out to somebody to help advise you on? Let me think about that a little bit. Uh, I mean, we, yeah, I, I I can't think of a day where I wasn't challenged on Mindhunter. Um, Mm. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are hundreds of examples. I mean, I was constantly texting with with all sorts of people in the business about how how to address certain issues. I, you know, specific issues that come to mind that I, you know, probably I can't give you like a specific example, but absolutely. You know, I think there's a little bit of shared war story kind of stuff that happens. You know, oh, this happened today and this happened today. And I, you know, you could have. Yeah. There's a, a decompressing that, that people do um, that, uh, you know, that it's just part of the process. Of course. Well, um, Brian, let me ask you kind of the same question about how did you really launch your career to being a camera operator? I, I came up through the camera department in a fairly traditional way, starting as a trainee and working through, you know, second AC, first AC and, and then the operator, uh, I was the trainee on silence of the lamps. So, uh, wow. I've been, been at it for a little while. Uh, very cool. And I always, you know, from the, in, in college, when I really got kind of serious and interested in filmmaking, operating just always seemed like this great job. 
you know, just you're the guy who's holding the camera. And I never lost sight of that. Uh, so I, you know, I moved through the department and everybody's path is different. Just like Eric said, that was my path and things seemed to come at the right time for me. Uh, and I started operating about 10 years ago and, and been doing that. And I, I, I love my job. I, I love doing it. I love being right there in the center of that hurricane you know, with this strange sorcery that we call filmmaking. When they call action, there's just this moment. When they call action, and it's you and the boom operator and the actors, and everybody else has to be quiet and sit back, and they're sort of hostages to whatever's going to happen. And I love being in there in that moment, and I, I never get tired of it. And that's that was, I think, what lured me to it, and I enjoyed every day. Mm, yeah, beautifully put. And there's one other person I think you you forgot to mention, which would be your dolly grip, Dwayne Barr, right? He's right in there with you. Of course. Oh, yes, yes. I, I should I should point out, yes, that uh, Dwayne, you know, any dolly grip, but especially Dwayne and also the focus puller mm -hmm. uh, in, in, on Mindhunter was Alex Scott. Mm. And yes, they, they are a big part of it. Um, and, and it's just, it's a great, it's just a great experience and challenging, but it's, it's a lot of fun too. I, I think of Brian, Dwayne and Alex as sort of the most beautifully designed Swiss watch in history. They're like, mm. so it's, it's like, they're so, they're, they're so perfect and so consistent. Um, like I'm always hesitant to to say their names in public because I'm afraid that I'll never, that someone will scoop them up and take them away and I won't get to work with them on the next project because they are that good, you know? Ah, uh, well then you better hope people don't check IMDb. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Eric mentioned the, the idea of a shorthand, for example, with mm -hmm. Gonzalez and there, there really is a magic to that. Uh, I, I think Alex and Dwayne and I, have this amazing shorthand where you're you're just really in sync and on the same wavelength. Uh, in fact, I, there was somebody, I think it was an actress, commented once that Dwayne and I had a conversation about trying to solve some problems in a shot, and it was so efficient and quick, you know, sort of thing like, so we need, yeah, yeah, okay, and but right here, yeah, I'm gonna go slower, okay, and and the actress said. Mm. You guys like pre-verbal communication. Exactly. She's, you know, I just listened to you guys have a conversation. It made absolutely no sense. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you don't have a lot of time and you need you really need that support and that team thing where you're after the, the same result. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the great things of filmmaking, that collaboration to achieve a common vision. It, it reminds me, you guys both kind of touched on very similar sentiments about the filmmaking process. And David Fincher has, um, maybe not super publicly, but I've heard him in commentaries and interviews mention that basically the things he enjoys about filmmaking are, you know, a good script, the casting process, rehearsal, and pre-production meetings. And things he hates are basically everything else about filmmaking. But given what you guys have been saying and the work you do, I imagine you find great joy in those aspects that he um, isn't so fond of. So 
What do you most enjoy about being on set and doing what you do? It's, it's very much what Brian said of it all. Everyone's laser focused, ideally, but then certainly in our case on Mindhunter, everyone is laser focused towards that one moment when the, uh, when the director says action and, and watching the stars align and sort of and participating in the alignment of those stars is, is a really magical experience, you know, and um, for me, I think, you know, having had a um, spent a lot of my life uh, on a movie set now and, and, um, and now, you know, having the opportunity to be more creatively involved in that process uh, than I was in sort of my previous career, I think um, it's just every day continues to be a little bit more magical than the last, you know, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's the, there's the sense of community and, and uh, family that you have, especially on a TV show or a movie where, you, you know, you get to be very close to the people you're working with and you have you form tight bonds with them and you learn that, you know, the names of their children and, oh, you know, what's, what's going on at home and, what, you know, when their kids are going to school and, you know, what their hobbies are. And then you, but you also, you know, um, learn what, what people's tastes are creatively and aesthetically and how, you know, how you can support each other. And, you know, I love that part of the process. Um, but I also love the kind of stripping away the layers and, 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 and letting everyone contribute their little, their little, they're, you know, they're the, the, they're one cog in this, in this machine we call the movie set and, and watching that the shot come out the other end is really exciting and cool. You know, I, I love, I love every day on a movie set. I adore it, you know, even on the hard days. Do you notice um, working with David Fincher that he is not enjoying the process or does he just say that and really he actually does? Uh, no, Dave, David absolutely enjoys the process. Um, I think David, you know, like any of us, directors directors everyone that's that's that is endeavoring on you know that is participating in this creative endeavor is forced to make compromises the second they show up at work you know um and someone as precise and thoughtful as david is really attuned to sacrifices he's making um you know uh and so i i i I happen to think that david loves loves making movies um you know i know he does uh i think that 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 doesn't mean that the days you know that when you when you see the minute failures in each each uh, moment that you, that they don't bug you, but uh, but you know it's 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 uh it's a total you know I love working with with David you know I, he he elevates everybody. And as a as a gaffer working with him, and then as a cinematographer, um, you kind of have the you know a view of like different relationships with him and see how how he treats you and how he treats people in in different roles. What what have you seen from that that other directors could learn from in terms of like how to be you know a great leader? Well, I think you know I think being a, one of the things that defines great directors uh, is being able to curate uh, the people around you so that they can be a paintbrush in your hand to to some degree. You know, you're sort of you have you have a hundred people there, give or take, and they're all responsible for one part of the painting and. Um, you know, if you can curate those people so that they can read your mind or that you can articulate something in as few words as possible and, and, um, and they can bring something to the party, um, then it makes your job as a director a lot easier. And, um, you know, I think that uh, David is, uh, doesn't like to compromise. He pushes people to excellence. Um, he doesn't settle for anything but your best work. 
uh, and those are great qualities for a director. And I wish more, I wish more directors had them because I think the work we would be doing would be better. Um, when I was a gaffer, part, I think part of the magic of, of, of a David Fincher film set is that, um, you know, Dwayne or Brian's uh, execution or dare I say performance um, between action and cut is just as important to David as uh, the performance of the actor. So mm. it's, a, it's a, actually a very egalitarian environment, you know, where everyone is, is really working hard. And, you know, if, if, uh, if, if Brian blows the headroom, but the performance is great, you know, <laughs> it's going to go again until Brian gets the headroom right, you know? Um, and, mm. and so it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of pressure on the, on, on, on Brian, but it's the same thing for the, you know, if Brian gets the headroom perfect and, and, and an actor flubs a line, you know, all those things, again, sort of the stars have to align, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think, you, you know, when you're working in that environment, you feel, you definitely feel like you have something, you have a part to play and you have an important part to play. And it, you know, it makes, it makes the environment both intense, but, but also really rewarding. Yeah. Very rewarding. I imagine. Um, well, I'd love to talk about camera movement um, on this show, but Brian, was there anything you wanted to add uh, or your take on what you really find most um, meaningful and, and, you know, joyful about, about being on set and being a camera operator? Yeah, the camaraderie is really wonderful. Uh, there's, there's something very warm and rewarding about solving problems together with, with other people, with your coworkers and, and Coming up with solutions, you know, there were Dwayne and I, for example, would, would, you know, go off and say, how the hell are we going to do this? Like, what are we going to, you know, <laughs> what do we, what, what, what do we think, you know, and, and you work it out and you figure it out. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to tell the story. Uh, you know, you, you have this great story, you have all these wonderful people and, and just capturing that is, is, you know, it just—it's a little—it's a little bit magical. Yeah. And when you get that performance, you know, just when you're in that moment, and you get that performance, and you know it, you see it, you're watching it. It's just great. It's just a fun feeling. You know, you're you're making a feel like you know, like the movie set. A movie set's a—it's a cool place. Yeah, it absolutely is. And you get kind of like. A, a view that nobody else gets as a camera operator. You're you're the first audience at the front row. Yeah, perhaps that's a good way to look at it. You know, it's like we see. What's the phrase? Uh, we see it first. I think that's the slogan of the SOC. Yep. So, um, talk to me a little bit about the camera movement on this show. It it feels extremely graceful and fluid, and yet. Very precise, very, very precise, almost robotic, um, but serene, like like being, it doesn't feel, you know, like the way the, the, the smooth starts and stops happens, it feels like there's humanity to it, not robotic in that sense. It's almost, I guess the way I would put it is like being guided by the, by the hand of God, you know? Um, I, and I think if a director would ask for camera movement, like what you guys are doing, uh, many DPs and camera operators would probably instinctively pull out you know a geared head but i think you guys rarely use geared heads right so um talk to me about the choices you guys are making and how you're achieving those shots well you know the, I, i'll give you the background on, on sort of where that style comes from a little bit and then brian can speak better than anyone about how we do it probably but um you know the 
the the the story of Mindhunter is is you know it's very cerebral, um, and it is um, to a large degree the the intention was to be very objective with the camera and with the storytelling and and be somewhere between fly on the wall and and looking over these guys' shoulders as they are uncovering um, in in most cases really gruesome. Uh, accounts of what what happened in these people's lives, you know, uh, and we felt that that if the camera was subjective, in other words, if it was handheld or it was it, it moved or you could tell that there was a human operating the camera, that the audience sort of instinctively begins to understand that there's another person in the room, that there's a, there's an operator operating this camera, you know, uh, and if we were really disciplined with it and we worked extremely hard to make the camera operating feel invisible um that the audience would be that much more engrossed in the story without having to heavily rely on point of view um and and so that's sort of the intention of of why we tell the story that way and we do you know we do break from it in some instances intentionally and i think that's where it gets really powerful because you really you know the audience is so used to this very specific style and then all of a sudden it changes but uh but that's the idea and and it you know it really you know, I think Brian Brian can articulate it better than me, but it uh, it, it really comes from just incredible amounts of discipline and skill on the part of, of, of Brian and Dwayne Barr, and and to be honest, the actors. So, Brian, how are you how are you achieving those shots? I mean, um, I imagine it's also there's a lot of rehearsal involved, but like just technically, what what are the choices you're making in order to get those kinds of shots? Uh, it's it's I think simpler than than people might realize it it's the application of the tools and particularly the discipline to do it well there's 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 in a way there's no secret uh to it you know we we rehearse we work it out we we practice and and then you do it so it's just i and and there's the goal is not to compromise. The goal is perfection. The goal is, or at least excellence. And so many productions are happy to phone it in. It, it's, 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 it can be very disappointing, particularly working with, with Dave and Eric and on a show like Mindhunter. I go to on, onto another show and it sometimes can be very disappointing because the bar is so low. Mm. Uh, and, and it's a great challenge to set the bar high and like, like, listen, let's make this the every single shot, the best shot we can. So you, you, I think you start achieving this. You start with, with that mindset, like we're going for the best on this shot, even though it's shot number 357, you know, in a, in a line of hundreds, we're going for our best. So you start with that. Uh, technically, you know, I, 95% 95% of that job was done on a peewee with a fluid head. Uh, and, and so no, you know, no tricks, not a lot of special equipment. Uh, Dwayne and I work very carefully together. He's, he's just an outstanding uh, dolly grip. And we work to lay out the shot uh, so that it can be physically accomplished. Uh, rehearsals. David does rehearse and, and that's, that's a big help. And, you know, that's, I think there's, it's no secret that 
he is happy to do uh, a number of takes and being able to do, you know, just at least a few more takes than many other shows will do allows, it allows a sync. It, it, it allows this, this look, this movement to be achieved. And I, you know, I did a lot of shots and I found that it usually takes about eight to 10 takes to get in that space. Mm, interesting. And you just can't get there without that homework. You can't just skip over takes one through seven. You, 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 and so you have to do the work uh, to get there. But then something magical happens where the actors, they, they, well, you do need their cooperation. I should say that just like Eric said, the, the actors who are on board and they, I think they understand the importance of it. And, and they were very cooperative, very helpful that way. And, and that's just tremendous for, uh, a camera team mm -hmm. i'm sure some even enjoy it you know it gives them a chance to really give you know uh, try different um renditions and also you know really push themselves to new places well it's when the yeah well, yeah, well, it's it, when the, yeah. Oh, sorry brian i was just going to say that when the actors are thinking about their choreography it, it 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 brought i think it deepens their performance a little bit you know when they're really forced to, to consider when they stand when they sit when they lean forward things like that mm. yeah yeah it's it helps, it helps if they're on board uh, to achieve it. And, you know, somewhere along the way, you just, everybody will lock up and sync and the camera disappears. It disappears into the tapestry of the film where it's, the camera is not a character. You know, it, it, it becomes invisible and it's a great look. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great choice where then you're, you're tricked. You're almost tricking the viewer. The camera's moving. It's doing things, but it's invisible. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think part of what contributes to that, um, like a way of phrasing it, is the camera isn't reactive. Like, you know, it, it isn't following what the characters are doing right after they do it. And it's also not preceding them. So it's not like you know or it doesn't feel like you're, the audience is being led by the camera work. Uh, like you're anticipating what's going to happen and you're just trying to, you know, kind of get ahead of them. Y you're moving with them and you're responding to them, you know, at the same time. I mean, is all that just by, you know, rehearsing and, and them doing, you know, a specific thing exactly the same way every time? Um, is it by storyboards? Like is, is an actor like just sitting forward in their seat a little bit, for example, um, is that something that is like specifically directed of them to do? Yeah, I think it's it's all those things. I mean, it's ballet is what we're doing. It's it's mm -hmm. you know it's in sync ballet, and they are um, so it's it's practice and rehearsal, and you know Brian Brian and Dwayne they knew by you know by the second episode of Mindhunter they knew which which part of Jonathan Groff's belt buckle to look at to judge whether or not he was going to step forward. Oh, wow. You know, they, they are so in tune with how these, you know, cause all the actors are different. I remember Dwayne saying, Oh, well, Jonathan always, you always see him start to put his weight on his right foot before he steps forward. And, you know, I watched for a couple takes and I realized that that is, you know, consistently true. It's, 
you know, it's, but, it, but if you don't have guys like Brian and Dwayne and Will Dearborn, who's operated the B camera, who are looking for those things and figuring out how to make themselves better, uh, you know, it, it takes 40 takes instead of 25 to do that right well, you know, or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember talking, I remember being in a meeting in the first season with Andrew Douglas, who directed um, a couple episodes uh, with, it was Andrew and David and I, and, and Andrew said to David, well, tell me about the camera movement, you know, tell me about what you guys are doing. And David said, well, we start with perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I can just imagine him saying that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, much has been said about, you know, Fincher's pension for doing multiple takes. And I've heard uh, Jeff Cronenweth tell me a bit about the reasons behind that when I spoke with him um, in episode three of of the podcast. So, you know, and you've spoken a lot about it. I I see the the value in it and the benefit. And when people, you know, you just have to watch a few episodes of Mindhunter to to see the, the results and you can't really argue with it. But um, the fact, you know, the fact is to get to that kind of place does take a lot of takes. And you probably do less takes than one than other people would require to get to that same place. Just because you guys have really dialed it in, you know, you have that switch Swiss watch kind of teamwork and you and, you know, you know what the actors kind of, you know, little tells are and everything that um, that's like a level of collaboration that, uh, you know, it exceeds like anything else you typically see it's beautiful yeah thank you yeah it's really quite something actually and it creates you know people have talked about this before but it's worth just mentioning that you know it really creates a like an audience empathy which i mean you know i think it was roger ebert who you know kind of famously said that movies are um empathy machines and you know, you, you, you feel for the characters, you kind of become them when you watch them. But what the camera is doing when it's like moving so in sync with them, when it rises up with them, when they stand up rather than just tilting, or if it tilts, it does it, you know, in a very precise way where it follows them, essentially. That has an effect psychologically on, on people who are watching it that, you know, you, you would never think about if you're just watching movies that never do that. It's really, it's really something, you know, but you guys use handheld and you mentioned that, you know, it it has a whole new power when you finally, uh, you know, break your style you've established and you end up using handheld. And there's, I think there's probably a few places in which you did it in season two of Mindhunter that I didn't even notice, but I felt it, you know, subconsciously as a viewer. Is there any example of, of using handheld that you would want to like discuss and, um, kind of like uh point out to people well we could you know it it sort of started with the first season because we a lot of the reason for restricting the use of handheld in the first season was because we wanted that the final shot of the first season was a handheld shot and it was something that david had in mind um for months and yeah brian you took me through that in an interview a couple years ago how you did that that was really interesting so so i i think you know carl franklin who did the last four episodes of the second season had seen that shot that Brian did and, um, and really liked the idea. And so we did it again um, in a slightly less dramatic way in, in episode um, seven, I think uh, where, where they first arrest, um, they first arrest Wayne Williams and, and for better part of the next several episodes, a lot of the stuff on location was done handheld. 
um, because we wanted to take the audience into a more subjective place. We wanted to take them into, you know, uh, out, outside the laboratory and into the real world, you know, and, and that was that that was something Carl Carl really wanted to do, and and I think it works pretty well, you know. But it's but that's because it's a you know it's a thematic uh, choice, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's a storytelling choice there. But uh, yeah, I mean, I you know I think you have to you have to make the right choices for whatever you're doing, and um. And they have to be story-based. Yeah. Well, you know, cars pass by cameras on, you know, like on a tripod on the side of the road, for example, uh, often in movies. It's kind of like a, you know, bread and butter shot of filmmaking. And, you know, the car or the camera pans with the car, usually a whip pan as it, you know, rushes past. And then, you know, you cut to another shot, depending on, you know, what's happening. Uh, There's a shot in, I think, episode seven, actually, where you know, you, you do a very intentional pan and yet you, you also track across, you start like on one side of the road and then you track to end up pointing, you know, straight down the road from the camera being, you know, now in the center of the street. Um, you know, that takes time and, you know, you have to set up the move. You have to, you know, you have to kind of practice it and everything. And it's not necessarily, you you know I would imagine on other shows you'd have to kind of make a case for all that. Why not just set the camera on a tripod and pan with the car? Is there any kind of like philosophy or thinking behind a shot like that that um, you guys are discussing on the show that that you you can share about? Like, do you know the shot I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably lots of instances where Brian and Brian and I would be standing on the side of the road with a director, and you know he would he you know be like, yeah, so we'll just pan the car across here and, and, you know, we'd look at each other and, you know, that, that may very well, I don't remember exactly, but that may very, very well have been Brian saying, Hey man, what if we put some track down, <laughs> you know, we move. Um, I think that there's, there's, a, you know, to some degree, there's a little bit of shooting from the hip that happens on the set, you know, mm-hmm. um, of, you know, people, you know, it's a, there's, there's, there's a little bit of jazz being played always, you know, of, sort of like you see what hand you've been dealt and you, and you know, if, if there, we had a saying on Mindhunter that was sort of like, you know, if you can improve the shot, speak up, but make sure that you're speaking up because you want to improve the shot, not because you're trying to stroke your ego, you know? Um, and I, I think that that was really evident, you know, what, what, what you got was a, a bunch of people who were really intensely focused on, on, looking at the shot, thinking about how they can improve it. And, and if they had an idea of how to improve it, they, you know, they presented the idea. And, um, you know, I, I don't know specifically what happened with that specific shot, what, you know, who, 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 who came up with that idea, maybe Brian does, but, um, you know, there's a lot of that that happens on a day-to-day basis, I think. Yeah. Well, it feels like maybe, you know, on other shows, you'd have to make like a case for that. Like, sure, it might improve it, you know, a little bit, you know, give some parallax and make it feel, you know, more cinematic. But like, you know, that takes extra time out of the day to, to set up and shoot. And, and you know, is it really worth it? Um, is there any kind of like, you know, you really have to fight for stuff like that? Or is it pretty clear like, oh, yeah, OK, our goal here is to do, you know, start from perfect, like David said. And anything you can do to get closer to that, you know, we're gonna do, and and not um, and not sacrifice, you know, just because it takes more time. I mean, Brian might have another opinion here, but I mean, I I think that the environment was pretty 
supportive and creative and there was you know always opportunity to to improve and you know it's like we have limited time like any other show and there's you know there's a schedule to keep and and you have to be conscious of that and, and to some degree that's you know part of my responsibility and the first AD's responsibility is to say okay well this is you know uh, I hate to use the term but good enough you know you have to get the day's work done but I think you know I think that we always looked for an opportunity to improve or you know I, I've never been on a show where you know the dolly grip goes up and says hey man can I do another one I think we can do better oh that's um, great you know and that that kind of thing happened all the time you know Dwayne would come up or Brian would be like hey I know you guys said that was good, but I think, you know, I think I was a little late, late on the takeoff. We'd watch it back and, and Brian say, you see, I, I can prove it here. I just, you know, or he, he faked me out or, you know, uh, I thought he was going, I thought he was reaching in his pocket for the, for the badge, but he, you know, he didn't move. He, he moved two frames later and I think we can do better. You know, that kind of, I mean, that was, those are the sorts of conversations we were having. Um, and it, it happened all the time, you know, Brian would come over to the monitor and, you know, your director, in my case, you know, we're, we're watching 50 things at the same time. And that's part of the reason we have camera operators is that, you know, I believe camera operating is a full-time job, you know, uh, that requires tremendous skill and, and attention, you know, so having an operator like Brian who could come up and say, Hey, I can, I can improve on this. You guys want to take the time to go again, um, you know, is, is amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, that sort of thing happened all the time. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, we could go into a conversation, which I, I wonder if it might be valuable having the two of you on about the role of having a separate camera operator on on set, because as um, as obvious as it might seem to, you know, someone listening uh, or, you know, anybody who watches movies, there is a lot of cinematographers who, you know, like to operate and not just you know, because as, you know, many people have admitted, even Steven Spielberg said it's like, the, you know, the best job on set. Um, they they don't just feel that way, but they actually do it. You know, they're both a cinematographer and, and the camera operator on set. But, you know, there's a case to be made that that compromises the work. You can only, you know, it spreads you pretty thin. You can only focus on so many things. So, you know, it's I think it's pretty clear that you see the value in having um, another camera operator. But, what about like you know the DP operating B cam? How do you feel about that? Well, it's a you know it's it's a balance. I mean, look, I I'm terrified of operating the camera because I'm around people like Brian and Will Dearborn all day that would do it much better than I do. <laughs> so, you know, uh, uh, but I look, I I think um, uh, there you know there's a lot of shots in mine where there are many situations actually where we use three cameras and I would operate the third camera. Mm -hmm. um, I prefer not to. I think that. Um, you know, particularly the kind of work we were doing, um, it requires so much focus and attention. Um, you kind of have to, um, you know, it, when I'm operating the camera in that type of environment, I'm not, I can't pay attention to much else. Um, you know, I just don't have the bandwidth. So uh, I can't imagine working without a camera operator. I, I you know, I, I, it's just not, it's just not really in my wheelhouse at all. I, I know some people do it. Um, you know, I really, I rely really heavily on the dialogue and the conversation. It's also, you know, it's not just, it's not just having someone on the wheels or, or at the fluid head on the dolly. Um, you know, it's also the creative conversation you have of, of figuring out how you're going to cover a scene and, and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to, trying to map out how much coverage you have, or, you know, when, you know, there are a lot of situations where, you know, Brian would come up and he'd say, Hey man, while we're here, we should get that close up, don't you think? And, you know, having another person in the room um, to 
to help you through those conversations and think about those things is really helpful, especially in a nine page scene with, you know, there are shots in my, there are scenes in my hunter with 60 setups, you know, so, right. so you can get lost in the coverage quickly, or you can, you know, you can block yourself in the corner and, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty good with, with screen direction and coverage layout and stuff, but, but, um, you know, being able to having having a, an operator like Brian in the room, um, you know, it makes it so much better because you can have that conversation and they, you know, they, Brian taught so many of my mistakes all the time, you know, <laughs> I'm sure if I could, I'd like to add one thing to that. Um, uh, as an operator, I, it's sort of the same, but the reverse is I'm a little terrified to have uh, Eric in, in there with us. Uh, the reason being is he is the quality control supervisor. He is watching everything that's happening and Eric's very supportive and I know he has my back. So if he's operating and, and Eric's a very good operator, uh, but if he's operating, he's taken away from that. And, and there's this, there's a sort of a, an exposure that suddenly occurs to me. It's, you know, and, and, it, you know, Eric catches my mistakes or in particular, you know, I might have a question, you know, there might be some nuance of a moment, a choice to make. And, you know, it's like, maybe there's a couple of roads to take and they're neither one are right or wrong, really. It's just a question of taste and being able to go to Eric and get that feedback and have that conversation because he's, he's watching it and he's double checking it all and, and making sure it's all going to fit. I, I like that. I like that ability. I like that backup. I like that support. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think it's important on sets, you know, if you, you know, for, for DPs who are operating and there's many DPs that are, excellent operators but it's it does spread you thin in my observation and and it, it makes it tough like something's going to suffer and uh, and and it, you know little things can can get lost yeah so i just want to sort of say that I, I greatly value eric's you know spot there and that he's he's watching out for all of us mm-hmm I like that, and I, I like the the way you expressed it. Quality control supervisor, that uh, that that could be a new category at the <laughs> Emmys and the Oscars, huh? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because people talk about it. I I remember um, I don't remember who it was, but some we had a we had a director coming to visit uh, the second season of mine. I think it might have been Andrew Dominic. Um, when when we were doing the the first episode of the second season, Andrew was 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 sort of um, shadowing David because he was going to direct the next block. And, uh, mm. you know, when we're rolling, David and I talk to each other almost the entire take. Really? Um, yeah. You know, we point at the monitor, there's smudge marks all over the monitor. We comment about what's not working, what's not working about the timing of an extra or, you know, wow. <laughs> the timing of Brian's pan or what, you know, we're literally talking to each other. Um, sometimes too loud probably yeah you're like dissecting it live as it's yeah happening. and and we're you know we're constantly making notes about what happened and david is very fast about going back and you know so he'll go and give the actors the notes and then i'll go to brian and give you know, brian and Dwayne and give them the camera notes and you know we can give the notes like in in 40 seconds and be rolling again and you know you know the, the turnaround is very very fast 
but it's because we're having that conversation during the take and and um you know that that kind of dialogue i it's certainly for our working relationship mine and david's is is essential and it's not possible if i'm not if i'm on the camera mm-hmm. um and it's and you know and being able to look at the shot and break because you know you, you can rehearse all you want um but the truth is 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 it it all gets kind of real when you start shooting and you're rolling you know yeah so so a lot of, you know a lot of our hard work happens in those first six takes you know. Right, which is kind of what Brian was saying, like the first seven takes are the homework. Right, yeah. Very interesting. Um, you know, typically on shows with multiple cameras, I'm not sure if Mindhunter is considered like a, a single camera show. I think it, you know, technically is, but, you know, you're, you have a B camera and, and as you said, occasionally a, a C camera as well. So, you know, typically on, on shows with, with more than one camera, the those additional cameras are kind of there to just grab you know, additional angles to give editors more to work with. You know, Mindhunter's so intentionally shot. It has a a shot structure that, you know, as you're watching it, it proceeds. It proceeds very elegantly and purposefully. So can you talk about how how you shoot with multiple cameras, how you plan that out? Is everything storyboarded? You know, are you breaking down a script like, okay, this is going to have these shots for sure that are going to be in the final product and we're going to get these shots with an A camera here and a B camera here. Is it done like that or how are you actually, you know, planning it out? We we actually do more two camera work than than people probably realize. I I would say 95% of the work was shot with two simultaneous cameras and we block for them. So um you know, we never, we had a kind of general unspoken rule of thumb, which was like the B camera doesn't just, it doesn't just get a bonus shot. There's no such thing as a bonus shot in Mindhunter. There's no such thing as a freebie. You know, there's no such thing as a long lens. Yeah. You know, we're not just grabbing what we can grab. It's all done intentionally. Um, Well, it feels like that for sure. Well, that's good. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think, you know, there's this, there's a process we go through of, of blocking, which everybody does, but you know, you, you know, you, we block the scene and, um, you know, oftentimes we, we would get, you know, the director would get 80% of the way through the blocking rehearsal. And then before we got the marking rehearsal done and we brought the whole cast in, you know, we'd bring the cameras in and Brian and Dwayne and Will Dearborn, the B operator and Mike, the B dolly grip. And we'd run the scene a couple more times and, and it would give Brian and, and Will an opportunity to look. And, and I would, just, you know, kind of point out, Sometimes we bring in a lens, other times I've had my still camera or whatever. And, you know, we only worked with a few, few focal lengths. We were very disciplined with it. Um, and Brian and Will would kind of riff about where they could be and what they could be. And, you know, uh, I'll be here and then we'll, we'll move in when this happens here. And then, you know, we sort of develop the masters, so to speak, um, for two cameras. And then, and then we break down the coverage from there, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so, but yeah, every, you know, almost all of the work, I think, uh, would you agree, Brian? I think it's almost all two cameras, right? Yes, I would agree. It, it was, like you said, 90, 95%, uh, two cameras. I, I think people might be surprised and, and, and I would echo all those thoughts that, you know, they these are not, throwaway shots. These are critical pieces of coverage often, or uh, sort of double masters in some cases. Sometimes we'd put down huge dance floors where both both A and B are rolling all over the place. Uh, and it, 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 it is it's sort of a ballet. And Will Dearborn did an amazing job uh, every day as a B camera operator and, and really 
uh, I, I think gets the what David wants to do and and achieve. So um, it's yeah, the the the, the B camera on Mindhunter at least is is not you know well if you can just get them coming through the door, that's all I'll use. No, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. We we you know we almost always ran through the whole scene on every piece of coverage. We generally found a way to keep the scene going. And, you know, so the B camera might go get a single here. Uh, and, you know, and then the, you know, the scene continues and the actors move and the B camera tracks over and gets this over. And, you know, we did lots of that kind of stuff. And I mean, you know, I always say, you know, people love to look at steady cam oneers and they love to, you know, and they, those shots get a lot of attention. And I actually, you know, I, I think the hardest shot in cinema is the 50 millimeter medium close-up stand-up. Oh, yeah. You know, it's literally the most difficult shot to execute. And, you know, it's like, I, you know, with enough rehearsal, you can, you know, you can walk through a nightclub and, and, and do a long steady cam wonder. And, but but to, to really, to, to execute that stand-up with the kind of precision that we were asking Brian to do is, I mean, there's only a couple people in the world that do it that well. You know, I mean, it's just not, you know, it's just so difficult. Yeah, clearly, because the amount of content that has shots like that are, you know, <laughs> I think I have enough fingers for the amount of things that, <laughs> that I've seen that have that. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you're, if, if 95% of what you're doing is with two cameras, are they, you know, I mean, just knowing that brings up a bunch of questions about where they're actually pointed for lighting purposes. Are you cross-shooting or... You know, are you are you are are the cameras generally pointed in the same direction so that lighting can can be optimized for you know the uh, for the direction that you're shooting in? Um, well, it's situational. I think that I'm not afraid of cross shooting. I uh, I think in in often cases, particularly in in uh, really intense dialogue scenes where you have you know performances that are that are operatic or, or, or sporadic, or, you know, you have continuity issues or whatever, you know, um, cross shooting is, is incredibly helpful. And we used it a lot. Um, you know, I don't, at least in Mindhunter, I didn't do a lot of relighting setup to setup and that sort of, you know, just kind of the, the, the lighting style of the show. It was, you know, a very natural kind of, you know, practically motivated and usually, you know, used a lot of top light and I, you know, I wasn't necessarily that worried about glamorizing anybody. I didn't have to bring the lights that low, you know, we lit for shape when we needed to and when I thought it was appropriate, but it, you know, um, we're also trying to stay true to the source and not, and, and not cheat lighting sources very much. And there's so much coverage in a lot of those scenes and so many pieces, um, you know, quite frankly, it, it would get very difficult to, to start moving the lights, you know, set up to set up. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, there's I, there's all sorts of instances where we we literally had the cameras touching. You know, there'd be a you know stacked you know a cowboy and a medium close up. You know, we'd shoot one on a 65, one on a 40. Or mm -hmm. um, you know, we had instances where where Brian's camera was facing one direction and Will's was jammed. That we had to move the motors on because the cameras were touching and he was pointing the other direction. You know, an actor walked down a hallway out of one shot and into another. You know, kind of thing. Right. Um, right. And some of it was you know we did some of that just to. Uh, you know, oh, what if we did this? Or, you know, one camera pans over the operator's head, you know, you know, Brian pans an actor across the room over Will's head and then Will booms up and gets the single. You know, we were, there was a lot of that sort of like, what can we get away with, you know, I think. Um, yeah, talk about ballet, huh? Yeah, there was a lot of kind of like, oh, we'll do this and then you guys will, you, you know, 
you'll open the valve all the way and dump the dolly all the way down and the, the jib arm will track over the B camera and the B camera will track, you know, will zoom back up and slide right and it'll get the single, you know, it's like all sorts of that kind of stuff happening, um, hmm. which is really fun. I mean, I wish there was more behind the scenes video because if you, if you watch these guys, if you watch Ryan and Dwayne and, and Will and Mike work on a, you know, on a, on a 12 by 15 foot piece of dance floor, it's, it was pretty beautiful, mm -hmm. you know, just in of itself. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was literally just going to tell you that I would love to see some footage of that because I imagine it's a treat to see. Yeah, I wish there was more. I wish there was more available. You know, we were also focused on making the show. We didn't shoot any behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's always usually like some kind of like BTS B roll kind of for stuff, but um, you know, I don't know. Maybe Netflix doesn't uh, doesn't choose to have too much of that. I don't know. But I um, I would love to see more footage of that. You were mentioning about the lighting, and I really would love to just go a little bit deeper into that. You you know you kind of gave like a little overview, which in a way kind of answers my main questions. But I feel there's got to be more to it because you know I I feel like I can you know see lighting pretty well. You know I've I've kind of trained myself, and watching this show. There is not a single shot I saw where I could figure out how you lit it. And there's a lot to be said for using, you know, all the tools um, of filmmaking at your disposal to to sculpt the lighting and make the actors, you know, perfectly lit. And then there's a lot to be said for stepping out of the way and, and using those same tools to make everything look completely realistic and let the actors maybe, you know, not be in the best of light um, because it fits with the nature of the environment. And... It's just what you're doing is completely, you know, uh, that philosophy. You're, and you're kind of like taking it to the next level, I feel, because I, I couldn't even tell, you know, what you were doing to light anything, really. All the lighting looks completely inherent in the reality of the scene. Um, but it looks very polished at the same time. So obviously there's practicals in every scene and the red cameras are really sensitive. Um, but... You know, what are you doing in addition to those practicals to actually light everything? Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, yeah, it's really, really impressive work. And congratulations on your Emmy nomination, by the way. Oh, thank, thank you so much. Um, well, you know, we tried really hard to, you know, the first question was always, where are we going to put the camera? Mm -hmm. And I, 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 you know, I learned from... Um, from a number of DPs, you know, it's a try, try to be very rhythmic in terms of like laying out the, you know, laying out the work for the crew. So it's always like, we always start with where we're going to put the camera. Uh, don't have a conversation about lighting until we know those, the, that, you know, until we have that answer. Um, Interesting. Com and, coming from a, you know, being a gaffer, sorry to interrupt, but sure. it just feels like that would be, uh, I don't know. It, it feels like that is the exact opposite of how someone would assume a, a you know, a former gaffer turned DP would approach lighting. It's really interesting that you come at it from a camera first, not lighting first. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you know, like I, uh, I'm not excited about doing lighting. You know, I, if anything, I'm reluctant. Interesting. Um, you know, I'm not. It's it's, it, you know, I I try try, and I I haven't always been that way, but I think. You know, I sort of, um, you know, I think a lot of DPs, they look at the shot and they think about, you know, where, where can I add a light? And I'm always like, what can I take away? What can I take away? Or what can I turn off? You know? Yeah. Um, and, and, but, and, you know, some of that is, is supported by, by the, 
by the content, obviously. But, um, uh, you know, in, in theater, um, you know, the audience, the, the audience, in, in our case, the camera, but in, in theater, it's the audience, is, is always ostensibly in the same place. You know, they're always looking at the performance from the same vantage point. So you can be very gestured and you can be very bold with the lighting in some cases. And, you know, because, because the audience is always seeing it from one place. But, you know, it, if you suddenly take that audience member and you take them backstage, it, you know, the magic is gone because it no longer looks the way it does from the, from the house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in cinema, we move the audience around the room with editing. So we, you know, we, we may take, you know, we can jump the line. We can take the audience backward to front lit. We can take them side. And, and so, you know, lighting is wholly contingent on the position of the camera. And, and in our case, many camera positions. So, you know, where we, uh, it was really important for me to kind of think about that first. And, and then think about which shots needed shape and which shots could be silhouette and which shots could be front lit and, and how we would approach it. Um, but also what all those, like, like what all those sets would look like normally, if you were to walk into a working prison, if you were to walk into a working diner, you know, how is that diner lit? What, what does it look like in real life? You know, um, and Steve Arnold, the production designer, who's incredible, um, is, is very thoughtful about lighting and how he designs sets. You know, he thinks about practicals, he thinks about window placement, he thinks about contrast. And, you know, if, if, the, if the set has a lot of windows and it's a day scene, he knows he can get away with, print, with painting the walls a little darker because he knows I'm gonna push a lot of light through the windows. And, you know, so um, that's, that's a huge part of that process is, is having a, a, a thoughtful, um, talented production designer like that who, who thinks about um, the whole process. Um, but yeah, you know, it was really, it was like, what's the least we can do? What's the, you know, to some degree, what's the least flashy, least dramatic thing we can do, um, to not take away from the story and just try to think about it as what does this place look like? And, and, you know, it's really, it was kind of an exercise in minimalism, but we used a lot of top light, you know, use the practicals as much as we could. Um, we reinforced them from out of frame if we had to. There, you know, there are instances where we hung lights in the ceilings mm-hmm. and painted them out in visual effects because we had no other way to solve the problem. Or, you know, there's there's all sorts of there's all sorts of tricks. You know, we used every trick we could. You know. Yeah, I think people would be surprised how how much effort it actually takes to achieve um, you know a look that feels so effortlessly you know, natural. Yeah. I mean, well, thank you for saying that. I, you know, we, we worked really hard for sure. You know, Danny Gonzalez, the gaffer, um, you know, is, is, is a real artist in his own right. And, and, you know, he brings a tremendous amount to the table and, you know, uh, there were a lot of situations where I would get very focused on, on working out a shot with Brian and Dwayne and, and Danny would go light for, 25 minutes and and uh and then you know they'd start rehearsing the shot and then i'd have an opportunity to go and work with danny and he'd have you know he'd have a lot of you know 90 percent of the work done already and, and i could sit back and finesse you know or mm-hmm. or other instances danny and i would spend you know we'd we sort of set up the camera position and i would leave and brian and Dwayne would work it all out with the, with the stand-ins or or in some cases the actors and danny and i would get you know really fractal and get really into the you know into the weeds on how we were trying to solve a specific lighting problem or whatever and yeah you know, so that's that's just part of the process, and it's all situational. Right, of course. Um, well, when it comes to the practicals, I mean, there's a lot of fluorescence, obviously, because, you know, the, the environments you're in and, and the time period. 
Are you actually using fluorescence or are you using LEDs for better light quality? Uh, it's a mix. There, there are many instances where, particularly in the prisons, where we use real fluorescence. I love fluorescence. I think they look so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, especially when they flicker, you know, they're so cool. Mm, yep. Uh, in, in some of the sets, in a number of the sets, um, we we replaced some uh, fluorescent, you know, like fluorescent proper fixtures with LED panels because we wanted color control and dimmability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it it depended on you know on expense and how how much time we were going to spend on the set and where we wanted to put our resources and, and things like that. Uh, yeah, of course. You know, I, I love putting fluorescents on walls and, you know, facing them towards the camera or, you know, putting them in ridiculous places. And, you know, somehow the audience actually buys it as a valid place to put a light. But, you know, I love the way that looks. Yeah, typically, you know, they create such a harsh light. But, of course, you know, with the aesthetic of Mindhunter, it really, you know, um, kind of reinforces the, the emotional, you know, aspect that you're creating. Yeah, you know, we were trying to, you know, I remember David described it once as, as saying, you know, we, we're we're finding the beauty in the banal, you know, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it comes through. Uh, you you talked about the production design a little bit, and you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to uh, discount the production design in any way, but my response, you know, in in my head is what production design because it looks like everything is you know like you went to real locations 100 percent. nothing looks like it was you know a uh, built really um how much how much of it was a set and how much of it did you actually go to real locations oh i would say almost all of it was uh stage built really wow uh, yeah i mean there's it with it with the exception of the exteriors obviously um mm-hmm yeah, I mean the 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 Omni Hotel set, um, which was a remarkable set uh, in the second season, uh, was built in a decommissioned Sears warehouse. Really? Um, wow. Yeah, that's that's not a that's not a location at all. They they built the entire thing. Um, yeah, Steve does, he, he deserves tremendous credit. And and again, you know, it's just it's so invisible because it's intentionally trying to be invisible, but it's. Uh, you know, it's really remarkable what they, those guys did. Oh, in, incredibly so. I mean, I I was completely fooled. I, I thought everything was a real location. And the fact that the hotel wasn't, you know, if, if it weren't coming from you telling me that, I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> very, very cool. Um, is there a particular set that, like, I don't know, for any reason you'd want to, um, you know, point out for a lighting challenge or Brian for like an operating challenge that came up in, in that set? I love the, I love the task force set in season two, which is this, it was like a, they converted, um, uh, and they really did it. And, and when they were investigating the Atlanta child murders, they, they, they took over this old car dealership and they painted the windows white and they, they put some offices in there for the FBI and, so Steve built that set on stage. It's a two-story set. It has a big, you know, glass windows that we painted with this kind of oak tag colored paint. And we lit, you know, predominantly through those windows. And I loved working in there because we had so much fun with the color. And, um, you know, we used a lot of smoke. And it was, you know, it's, it's very, really aesthetically fun environment to work in. And we moved the camera a lot in that set, you know, which um, Brian can talk to a little bit, probably more than we did in a lot of the other sets on, on stage. Mm. What was the reason for the, uh, you know, um, extra camera movement there? I would, 
I would say we, in a way, had the space to move, you know, because the characters, it was a pretty big set. Uh, and, and so the characters could move and they had reasons to move uh, in terms of the story. And so we moved with them. Mm. Uh, and, and that was that was a lot of fun. Were you on dance floor there? It, um, I, I think uh, just logistically uh, for the aesthetic, uh, Dwayne and I always try to start with track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, makes think, sense. You know, can, can we do it on track? You know, how can we do it on track? Uh, but there's, you know, times you can't, and so you, you go to you go to dance floor. Uh, Dwayne Dwayne is excellent at, at breaking that down. Uh, and, and figuring it out. And there were times where you're, you're on the fence. Like, well, I, I think if we just kind of justice mark a little, we can get away with it on track. And so, you know, you, you, it's in the moment. You, you have to look at it. Uh, you know, we sometimes, you know, very big dance floor moves. And if that's what it requires, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, but the, yeah, the task force just, I, I feel like just, allowed us all to open up you know the director the actors just do we have a we have a a big interesting space and and let's use it yeah you know a lot of what we had been doing for two years was shooting people sitting at tables talking to each other you know and um right yeah and you know it was never part of the conversation was like how how can we make this quote-unquote more interesting you know that was always like a dirty word it was never like oh let's try or more dynamic yeah exactly you know or, um, you know, it's almost as bad as somebody saying, oh, that's so organic. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, we did, we really tried to just nuts and bolts tell the story in those situations. So, I, yeah, I think Brian's totally right. It was like once the actors could move around and they were in an environment where it made sense for them to move around, we, you know, we inevitably moved around. Hi, let me take a moment to tell you about the sponsor of this episode, Evidence Cameras. If you're in the Los Angeles area, Evidence Cameras is a fantastic place to get all of your rental gear needs met. They're a tight-knit team of working camera professionals passionate about everything camera-related, including helping you create your vision. They strive to go beyond just accommodating your gear list, which I might add they can do no matter what you need. With tons of gear and extensive relationships, they can help you get any piece of equipment you want. Located in Echo Park, just 10 minutes from downtown LA, I highly suggest you check them out for your next project. On the topic of production design real quick, though, I... uh... I was just curious about one set for some reason it, it stood out to me right now, which was the the church. Was that built or that must have been a real one, right? You mean where they have the um where they have the, the uh the community meeting? The uh the community meeting. Yeah, I think it was in episode seven, maybe eight. Yeah, that's a location. That's a location. Look, I okay. Actually, yeah. I had a feeling. Yeah. I we you know, we are fortunate on Mindhunter, which you don't always have um in television to we had all the scripts in advance so um you know we knew where we were going in episode seven when we were shooting episode one and it meant the prep was much more extensive and we could really kind of dig into it and i had pulled a still um from uh a movie harris shot called the yards um and and i had sent it to steve arnold and david and i was like i think that this is the this is the kind of tone that we should do this community meeting and he had done this kind of soft underexposed top light in that film. And, and I also sent the still to Jen Starzik, who was the costume designer, who's, who deserves just as much credit as, 
as Steve Arnold does in terms of how the show looks because it's you know she played a huge part obviously. Um, oh yeah, and how the characters are de- defined by their clothing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, talk about really you know making the character the clothing like you know its own character. Oh yeah, so much. I mean, you know, it, a lot of people don't know that all of Dr. Carr's blouses were all handmade and designed by Jen. It's, it's not like they bought those stuff off the shelf. She, you know, she tailored all that. But, um, but I sent, you know, I sent that still to them in the very beginning. You know, I said I want to do this in, in the church, and you know, and and then everyone took that, um, and we talked about it more. And then, you know, seven months later or whatever it was, we went and shot the scene. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, that's the location. We we put in a big a big overhead soft light in there. Danny's team. Uh, figured out a way to reach to the ceiling safely and they put in a big big top light. Was that using like um balloon light or some other technique? No, I think they had sky panels in there, some sort of LED source. Like I you know, I don't remember. I have to get back to that. But yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, t- speaking of locations, uh one of the things I really wanted to touch upon was something you guys pioneered as far as as I'm aware at least in season 1, which was the innovative you know car process you guys did with the led walls and i spoke with um cinematographer greg fraser about you know his use of led walls in the mandalorian which is you know pretty revolutionary and it feels like what you guys are doing and and did in season one with the driving shots is very much kind of like a a parallel development to that which you know the two are coming together to really push things forward can you talk about uh, how that process actually works and how it evolved for season two compared to what you did in season one? Sure. Um, well, we should, you know, we that what we did with the car work uh, is was really building on something that David had done on House of Cards way back, mm. um, using LED walls as an interactive light source, and then um, and then we did it again on Gone Girl actually. Oh, did you? Yeah, we, all the car work on Gone Girl is done with the same method, um, except we 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 took it a little further and we and we started to use projection um, as a sunlight source uh, on that movie. Um, and then, you know, with David, David had, had always dreamed of of figuring out a way to shoot all these plates simultaneously, and and so in the first season we built this plate vehicle that that goes and shoots the plates for for the background comps because it's a, it's a green screen or a blue screen comp um, visual effect. Um, and, you know, so the, the, the process is, is we, we go and we rehearse the scene in advance, um, usually with the actors, sometimes with stand-ins if there isn't a lot of action uh, with the director. And we figure out all the angles of the car that we need to cover the scene in the car. So, you know, raking, overs the singles uh from the front side of the car the french overs shots through the windshield you know two shots through the windshield two shots from the back seat those sorts of you know sort of you know there's and there's basically about nine shots you can do inside a car you know and there's obviously variations in focal length and camera height and all that stuff but there's you know those are sort of the that that was kind of our playbook and Mm -hmm. uh we would get all of those angles relative to the center nodal center of the car and then we would go replicate those on the plate vehicle and we'd shoot the plate simultaneously with 12 cameras wow so the the plate vehicle would go off on location where we wanted those background plates they clear it of modern cars they put picture cars on the road if it was appropriate and we shoot the plate so we take we take those plates and we uh we bring them back to stage and we play them on their 
respective uh, playback panel. It's an LED wall that we've suspended over the car so that the profile plate, for example, gets played on the profile panel, which is outside the driver or passenger window. Um, and we do that so that the interactive light on the actor's faces, on the surface of the car, on the chrome of the door sill, on the steering wheel, on the dashboard, is in concert with the with the final comp when the when the green screen is replaced in visual effects. And and that's you know and it it leads to a very seamless effect because you you know you get all this especially at night where you get street lights passing and you know it always looks fake to me if they're not passing the same cadence as they are in the plate you know which happens if you don't do it that way. Oh, of course. It's like a very elevated version of, um, you know, what they used to do with rear projection, which, you know, never looked good to me. And I, I really didn't understand as a viewer why old movies, why everything, you know, all the car shots look so fake until I realized, you know, it had to do with the history of, of you know, technology and camera size and, you know, cameras weren't very mobile at that time, you know, and all the all the details. Right. Um, and then I could kind of forgive it a little bit, but, you know, it's still, it, it, it looks pretty unforgivable, you know, now. And then what you guys are doing is completely like, uh, transparent in the sense that, you know, I can't tell that it's not real. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, we, part of, I mean, you know, people ask me about this stuff all the time and they, and they, you know, we often get credited as, you know, it's like, oh, it's you, you've got, you guys have really uh, revolutionized it or whatever. And, and I'm always quick to point out, well, you, people should just watch To Catch a Thief because Hitchcock did it, you know. Um, I don't know, what was that, 1963 or whenever that movie was. Um, uh, you know, and he absolutely pioneered this idea of, of you know, lining up the plates in advance, going to, uh, you know, going to the south of France, shooting them, going back to stage and shooting them, you know. The, um... It's funny, you yeah, you mentioned that film. That was, yeah, that's one of the ones that I recall that did it, like, the best, you know, of the of the classics. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, obviously limited by the technology at the time, but he, he definitely was forward-thinking in, in how to approach it. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we fortunately happen to be making movies at a time when the technology is... is uh, uh, can you know has caught up to that I, that concept you know I suppose yeah and and all these kind of parallel developments that are happening like with uh, the volume you know that that kind of taking what you guys are doing to the next level not just for process shots but like for an entire you know an entire set what they're doing on the Mandalorian and then they implemented that a little bit on Westworld and I think you know what what you guys are doing now and and I've had the great fortune now of being able to speak with you know the the cinematographers for for all of your shows um I think what you guys are doing is probably going to be looked back on as as like you know testing the waters and and pioneering the use of something which in the future is going to be probably not just widespread but you know like the way things are done for the great majority of things especially as the technology develops and, you know, you can do, you can kind of mix things with like the virtual reality sets and, and scouting things with, you know, virtual reality, like they did on the Lion King. All this stuff is really interesting. How do you, how do you feel about kind of like the future of filmmaking in this like more virtual kind of direction? Well, you know, there's, it's funny you bring that up because there's a, there's a scene in the second, second episode of the second season um, where, Tench goes and interviews a, a victim of the BTK killer, uh, and it, it takes place in a 
in a parked car in a pickup truck in a parking garage. And oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And yeah, and it's a quite a long scene. You know, it's eight or nine minutes, I think. Um, and it's written as Dawn. Um, and and that was really important in the story. You know, it was, it was something that was really non-negotiable. It had to be done. And you know, anytime you read Dawn or Dusk as a cinematographer, your heart skips. A, you know, you kind of panic a little bit because of, yeah, <laughs> you're like, how are we going to do that in the time we have? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so we, you know, David and I talked about how we how how we could accomplish it, and and we ended up doing it on the on the car process stage, which we hadn't done before in a static environment. And it, you know, it's a little bit like what Greg was doing with Mandalorian. You know, uh, of and and you really, you know, that's the great benefit of being able to stop time. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the one thing I think all filmmakers want uh, in their shooting day is control of time and yeah uh you know so so being able to pause time and make it you know make it dawn all day long so you can shoot a nine minute scene in a car that's you know in in our case took a couple days to shoot is um is an incredible advance in filmmaking you know (laughs) it's like just a uh it takes a tremendous amount of pressure off and you know it allows you to get those performances from the actors that you otherwise uh you might have to look over because you're waiting for the sun to move you know um i can imagine uh, or or or, Uh uh-huh go ahead well, no, or just, or just, or, you know, hoping it's, it, it stays down a little longer, you know, right. and there's, it's, there's always that ticking clock is, is, you know, at least in my case, fills me with an incredible anxiety when I'm, when I'm out, you know, yeah. in the real world having to execute something. Yeah. No, naturally, you know, for all filmmakers, I think. Um, but, you know, I can imagine how you achieve that for, you know, the, the close-ups in the car for the actual, you know, dialogue, but the wide shots must have, you know, they must have been done in an actual garage, right? That's right. So we went in that particular case. We went and shot. We shot the vehicle, um, in 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 the real in situ there, uh, and then we went. We took the plate vehicle, and we actually it's you know you don't it's very subtle, but if you watch the scene, you actually see the scene get slowly brighter as the as the as the sun is coming up, and that's because we shot the plate. Um, you know, we shot. 15 minutes of plates or whatever on one one floor above simultaneous and and the actors did the scene in the car you know the entire the entire scene in the car uh, on the wide shot uh several times um so that we could get it in a variety of different light um and and then and then we matched back to the master that, that david liked so we sort of established the time of day in that way um and then when we went to stage we you know we uh we lit it to match um using those plates as as both as reference but also as the source material for the lighting wow yeah i mean you're really getting close to playing god almost as close as humans can get when it comes to filmmaking that's amazing um is there anything about like how can like what you've described so far seems to be what i know of the process from season one but naturally you know it probably uh, evolved quite a bit and and got like refined for season two what what changes were made and, and how was it made better? A specific to the car process? Yeah. Um, well, you know, we, we actually, we did a, a tremendous amount of work on, on the screen itself. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the challenges of shooting green screens or blue screens is the reflection and the kickback and the spill um, that you end up suppressing or fighting. And, 
you know, part of that, part of the way we solve that is we minimize the amount of it that's in the frame. You know, you, you cut it way back. So it's, it's, it's only green or blue within the field of view of the camera. Um, but, you know, when you have flat panels of green screen or blue screen, they, they inevitably reflect some green or blue light back on the, on the set. Um, and we had experimented with some techniques in the first season of angling the screens and playing with the position of the lighting, and, you know, really getting uh, much more specific than I had ever been with, with blue screen or green screen. You know, I sort of, I, I sort of, you know, came into that thinking I knew everything there was to know about lighting blue screen and green screen. And then David said, no, you don't, <laughs> you, know, you can, you can do better, you know, like he does with everything. Um, and, and what we came up with in the second season is we actually, we, we called it the cove. So you have the volume and, and now the cove. <laughs> yeah. And the cove was this horseshoe shape, uh, three-dimensional screen that was, uh, it's a recessed, um, I don't know how to describe it exactly. It's, it's a kind of like a, a cyclorama, right? But with a screen instead. Yeah. But it's, but it's, it's, it's curved on both sides on the top and bottom it was only about 12 feet high. And, and it was an idea that Fincher and I had been playing with since Gone Girl, actually, um, uh, this idea of curving the screen three-dimensionally to minimize spill. So we took this idea and we made a couple models, prototype models of different sizes, and we lit them with LEDs. And, and, um, and then we took what we thought was the ideal size and we brought it into the computer. And um, in previs, um, we modeled the, the, um, the screen and did some ray trace renders and found the exact angle where we could put the LEDs and get a perfectly even screen with uh, absolute minimum kickback on on the set. Wow! And and so we you know we and we found the parabolic curve that would do that that would accomplish that and and then they they built that to that spec um, and the whole thing um, and then it was plaster finished and super super even and it was it's all lit with a couple rows of LED ribbon um, at the same color spectrum as the paint so it was you know 520 nanometers of talking about dedication to perfection yeah. Yeah, we got really into it. But, you know, the result is, you know, the the thing is, and Brian can probably speak to it too, you know, you could walk up to this thing and you're, you'd stick your hand out. You had no spatial uh, perception of where the screen was in 3D space. It all kind of disappeared. Uh, you know what? It, that's exactly right. It, it, it was the best blue screen I think I've ever seen. It would just, it seemed to go on for infinity. You couldn't really tell where it stopped and where it started. Even though it was right in front of you, you know, but it was just, it was so good. It was so good. Yeah, because your, your eyes didn't have any of the cues that tell you something is either 10 feet or 5 feet or, you know, a trillion miles away. Right. And we had, we had that you know, we knew from the first season what, our, what the limits of our coverage was in the car. And, and we knew that we could, to, to a large degree, limit the directors to those 10 angles. So then we went in the computer and previsited all, and we figured out the bare minimum that we would need. You know, so the screen was not very far from the car; it was all, you know, all of maybe 15 feet. Um, but because of the way it was lit, it um, it had, you know, it, it had almost no effect on the car at all from a spills perspective. Yeah, it was pretty. It was a really fun project. You know, it's like something no one will ever notice, but <laughs> we worked really hard on it. You know. Yeah. Well, you'll notice it by the absence of things that would, you know, you'd notice 
if it were done, you know, to lesser standards, basically. Yeah. Um, on the topic of like, you know, things pioneered for Mindhunter that um, improved from season one to two, can you guys talk about the red xenomorph, the like custom, you know, all-in-one camera that was built for you guys? Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I can talk about the design, and then it's it spent more time in Brian's hands than anyone else on the planet. Yeah. So. Yeah, Brian, please. Yeah. We definitely want to hear about that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the idea, the idea was basically to get back to the days of the Panaflex when you just, you put a lens on the front of the camera, you put a, you plug the battery in and you put the magazine in and you were ready to shoot, you know, and, you know, I think, you know, modern cinema cameras have become this, cacophony of wires and brackets and aftermarket boxes and you know we just didn't we didn't like that idea it just seemed absurd to be honest and you know it's so we combined all of the all of the aftermarket parts that we that we rely on now to make the assistance job easier and make the you know transmit the image wirelessly and deal with time code sync and um you know uh wireless focus etc and we put them all inside the camera and you know that's that was that's where we built and and we we had a we red red built a what we call the the mark one for the first season of Mindhunter, um which was actually built as a handheld camera believe it or not oh yeah i could see it because it kind of had like the shoulder curve built in exactly yeah. yeah exactly um and then um once we knew more about what the what the show was when when they when it came around time to build the second second camera that we, we you know we uh we made some design changes and and we built the mark ii which is sort of the now kind of the gold standard xenomorph and and proved to be pretty pretty bulletproof and how much of a role did you actually have or you and david or you brian and david um you know the people who are using it in um the design of it beyond just like telling them what you wanted did you like work with them or did they just kind of like take care of it for you um, we, we sent it, it was, I was not involved in the, in the first, uh, in the first design because Chris Probe shot the first two episodes of Mindhunter and he had, he had, you know, participated in the design of that camera. Um, but then when it came around time to do the second season, uh, yeah, I mean, all those designs, we, we, you know, we sent stuff back and forth all day. And I think Brian, you even got fitted for an eyepiece at one point we were, you know, um, and, you know, we, we were sending, you know, we were getting the prototype, you know, CAD drawings and stuff on, on the first season. So we had an opportunity to look at it and weigh in. And the assistant, to, you know, um, Alex Scott, Focus Puller, um, you know, had an opportunity to speak up about what wasn't working or what he wanted to improve or, you know, where we where we felt the camera could improve, et cetera. And then, Brian, what was um, what was your experience of working with it? The, the absence of the mess is one of the greatest benefits uh, I've been on plenty of sets with plenty of cameras, and it, it's 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 like they're trying to have all these boxes and wires actually reproduce uh, <laughs> on the camera. It's so messy, and it's it's a very the xenomorph. It's a very clean build, and uh, at least for me, I liked it very quickly because there's just no wires at all, uh, and and. Particularly for season two, one clever thing was they they built the the, the motors, the focus and the and, and the you know T-stop motor into uh, almost like a cradle or something underneath the lens that could swing away. We called it jawbone. Oh yeah, I, I I saw it in a photo. It almost looks like a bracket that just kind of like comes yeah. out. Yeah. 
and 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 so that you know just by the very nature of it being engineered and and built it would you know it's all lined up of course we're using the same lenses primarily but it's you know you put the lens in and you just snap that jawbone up and, and you're done there's no cables there's no moving motors there's no you know okay we just have to hold on we need a, you know, a couple of minutes where we just have to you know do this or the thing we got to change the wire in the box you know that 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 kind of thing adds up you know those sorts those minutes add up over the days and that time i feel like often comes out of the director's time with the actors mm-hmm. it's just that's where it's going to get cut cut in and and so having a, a you know it's it's a red camera inside it's just a red camera but just to use it ergonomically and logistically there's an efficiency that it imparts that I, I think saves time and, and it's, it's robust, you know, the construction is robust and I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's, it's for me, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's fine to use, you know, it just, it's, it's going to hold up to the, the rest of production. And you know, I got very used to it very quickly. And uh, I bet it was a real blessing for your second AC to not, you know, <laughs> to not have to be like constantly stressed about, you know, getting everything attached and in working order and, you know, in the short time, you know, pressure. What, how many of them did you have? I mean, obviously you had the, the A, B and the C, but like how many copies? We had, they, they made five, I think, and we had four. Ah, you had four. Yeah. Okay. So you basically had. And we carried a couple small red bodies as well because we, we, we did a lot of work on a DJI Ronin. We used it as a stabilized remote head uh-huh. on, on the set, on the dolly. Uh-huh. Um, so we kept a body built in that all the time. And then we, uh, and it, it proved to be incredibly valuable piece of equipment, actually. Um, you mean the Ronin? The Ronin, yeah. I've used it every job since, you know, religiously. And then um, uh, and then we had another, another modular body that we could strip down and put in the dashboard of a car or down in the footwell or, you know, in a, in a corner, uh-huh. you know, we put it on a bazooka in the corner all the time, and, you know, <laughs> literally a lens in the box and a battery, you know, hiding somewhere. Oh, so that is the one example then where you kind of break your own rule and you, you know, you're stealing shots, but still, still probably not a throwaway shot. And probably some very intentionally, you know, constructed frame. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't like oh, put the third camera down there for shits and giggles. It was like we need, we want to put a camera here. What can we do? Well, we have we we have this body. We'll figure out a way to you know we'll figure out a way to put it there. Um, you know, which is not uncommon. A lot you know that happens all over the uh, you know all over our our industry. Yeah. Totally. But, you know, it goes a little bit, at least on the surface, you know, before you you talk about how you did it, it goes on the uh, or on the surface, it goes a little bit against the kind of, you know, the rules that you established for how Mindhunter is shot. The use of the Ronin, though, that was new compared to season one, right? It was. Yeah, I had seen it. um, I had seen it on a commercial. I'd used it on a commercial and I I thought, God, I should show this to Fincher. And um you know, it's made of carbon fiber. He likes things that are carbon fiber. And I said, okay, this will be a win, you know? <laughs> and, and I brought it into it. I was doing a camera test at, um, uh, on the soundstage when we were prepping the second season. And, and I thought maybe we could put these on the camera car. Hmm. And, and I, cause you can lock it, you can lock it, um, you can lock the pan. It'll maintain its pan relative to the, to the, to the Mitchell plate. So it, it will stabilize, you know, mm-hmm. um, this is perfect for, for the camera car. And I brought it in and he, he saw instantly saw the value, um, and we ended up 
God, how many did we have, Brian? We had like eight of them, I think. Something crazy like that. Um, and we had one, you know, just on the first unit with the with the shooting crew the whole time as part of the camera package, and then the rest were on the camera cars, stabilized heads. But yeah, we used it, you know, we used it a lot. And Brian, does that mean that you were occasionally operating the wheels on the Ronin, or were you always on, you know, a Xenomorph A camera, and the Ronin was kind of like a C a C camera or D, you know, plus? I, I would use I would use uh, the uh, the Ronin with the wheels. Um, you know, we said like 90% of it was done, you know, with a, with a peewee and a fluid head and the other 10% was probably done with the Ronin. Uh, it, it's a, it's a great tool. And there, there are times, uh, that you, you just, it, it just helps you, you know, a shot might become so difficult trying to move around the dolly or get into certain spaces it becomes counterproductive. I, I'm definitely a fan of being on the dolly so that I can feel what's happening. I get a, a lot of feedback mm -hmm. through the eyepiece. Yeah. To, to know exactly when we're moving and, and how we're booming and, and so on. But there can be times with shots. It's, it just becomes counterproductive or even impossible uh, to do. And so, you know, that's the time for the Ronin and it does have some of these features, you know, like some stabilization and, and uh, back pan corrections and whatnot that, that can be very useful. You know, you can just, you know, like, we don't need track. Let's just roll right on the floor, for example, yeah. and, and it'll be okay. Uh, so great tool. Yeah, I know Mitch Dubin and uh, Dana Gonzalez really, like, they kept the camera on the Ronin, like, 90% of the time on uh, Legion. At least on on the uh, most recent season, yeah, I uh, I saw them. I did a little set visit for that, and um, they had it on there like the whole time. They they're total converts to it, and I think yeah, I, the Ronin like last year I believe even won the Society of Camera Operators uh, Technical Achievement Award. It's like it's a big deal. The fact that it uses wheels though brings me back to one little point I wanted to make. Brian, you already answered it about um, you know preferring to be on a fluid head as opposed to a geared head. But, you know, if someone kind of wanted to replicate the types of shots that you're doing, and, you know, like I mentioned before, I think a lot of people would gravitate towards a geared head as the appropriate tool to achieve that kind of uh, very precise fluid motion. But the fact that you're not doing it, you know, means you're you're specifically not for, for a reason. Uh, so what... What's your thinking behind that? Why aren't you using a geared head? A uh, geared geared head is also a great tool. Uh, it, it's just it you know they're big, and uh, it, 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 it the geared head is phenomenal for certain shots, but at other times it can it can force kind of a mechanical look. Uh, it's very very subtle. It's it's a nuance that I think many people wouldn't detect, but there's a danger of it becoming mechanical. Uh, and I, I just find that the fluid head, you know, there, there, again, there's weaknesses with the fluid head too, uh, you know, and strengths. And, and so you, ideally you just pick the, the tool that's best for the job, but the fluid head is so versatile and, and, and can j just so much of the time be a completely fine tool for achieving the shot uh, that, that you know I'm, I'm happy to leave that on there 
and it's 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 you know it's small it it's very instinctive how to use it and so i and and david i think understands that and 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 likes he, he likes a fluid head i think uh so and, and you know there's there's maybe an access for him to to grab it and use it or line it up that he might or also and does he do that like often um he yeah, sometimes he'll, you know, he'll, he'll have the camera after, after rehearsal and we start looking at it, he'll often, Dwayne will be right there with the camera, you know, camera built, lens on, and we'll start working it out with, with the camera. And that's a great thing. Uh, Eric talked about that earlier. This, this idea, it's just so efficient. I'm surprised more productions aren't disciplined about this. Do your rehearsal, block your actors, block the scene, put down your marks, get the camera, and line it up. Because the only thing that's going to matter is it's what's inside of that box. Mm-hmm. You know, so for set dressing, for lighting, for these things, I just like don't 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 people want to know what the shot is? Because that's all that's going to matter. If you start laying things in. I, I get people want to be quick and, and, you know, they're trying to get ahead and I understand that, but there's been, you know, production sometimes where they're halfway lighting the set before we even have the shot. And all that happens is I say, all that stuff has to move. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, I see it all. This is the shot. So <laughs> it's really counterproductive. If you think about it, David and yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I think. Uh, David and Eric have a, a, a wonderful discipline in that, Let's, okay, right after rehearsal, let's have the camera. Let's look at it. Mm-hmm. Let's line it up. Okay, great. And we'll do one camera at a time. Bring the A camera in. Okay, this is the shot. Put the mark down. Okay, now bring the B camera in because now we know where the A camera is going to be. Now let's bring the B camera in and put that where because it can go here and it can go here and there's no restriction or whatever. Yeah. Okay, now this is the shot and that's what you're lighting and that's what you're dressing. And it's just, it's so simple. Mm-hmm. And, and yet that idea seems to be lost on many productions. It's it just people rushing around. And in my opinion, it does become counterproductive. And again, it, it saves time and you know, allows you know, time for your director, uh, ideally, to have that for the actors. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because uh, you know, the part about productions not doing that because it feels like what you just described is the way filmmakers are taught and you know kind of like you know the the natural way to go about it unless you're someone like Terrence Malick and to go you know with a different approach would only ever be if it's because the effect you're trying to get is a certain spontaneity or you know you're doing it for some other reasons so I'm surprised that that's not your experience of how other productions work. Very interesting. I think that there's a, you know, there's a thing that happens where people, everyone has time anxiety on a movie set. Everyone, no one wants to be the last person working. No one wants the production waiting on them. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure to get your part of the job done, you know, and, and it's, we, we were lucky in that we had David Fincher setting the tone of really making 
sure that we were in a place to keep the set very disciplined. And I was really supported to carry that forward, you know, and I think, you know, it, like, as, a, as directors and cinematographers, spend their entire day answering questions for the most part you know it's you're mm -hmm. this it's a huge amount of time is spent answering people's questions and it's been my experience that if i stop everybody from doing what they need to do and we just take the 10 minutes to line the shot up each setup 90 percent of those questions can be answered on their own because all people have to do is then go look at the shot, you know? Right. Um, exactly. What's in the frame, what's out of the frame, what, what, who, which actors are being seen, you know, how extensive the lighting is, what the background needs are, all those, all those questions get immediately answered. So it's, you know, it's really valuable to take the time, but it, it requires a tremendous amount of discipline to take the time and force people to take a breath and look at the shot and think about it for a second. And, and it also gives us the opportunity to think about the shot. You know, because what other what what often happens in the the alternate situation that Brian is describing, you can end up wagging the dog. You get the you know you get down down the road lighting something and you're like oh god this looks really great, but now now those lights are in the frame, but I don't want to sacrifice the lighting because we just spent 40 minutes setting this up. So um, so let's just boom up a little better. We'll shoot on a slightly longer lens. We'll move the marks, and you you end up in this vicious feedback loop, which leads to more compromise. A circle of compromises. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Well, what you're describing feels really, I mean, I hope people who are listening take this to heart if they're not doing it, because it, uh, it, it solves so many of the problems that happen. Not only are you preventing yourself and the director from getting like, you know, decision fatigue and, and answering all these questions that really honestly can be much more efficiently communicated um, through the ways that you're describing, but, you know, taking a break and, and having people kind of see things for themselves and and be a little more empowered about the choices they're making rather than relying on what you know asking questions for everything when they can just kind of refer to like a master vision you know that makes that gives people more time to think and they get a little less stressed out from the time pressure and it makes them more self-reliant and everything works better it <laughs> feels like the way filmmaking has kind of been you know, standardized over decades of trial and error and developing the art. So uh, I hope that becomes more commonplace again, <laughs> if it's kind of become less than it used to be. Uh, it's more like a classical style of filmmaking, basically, is what you're talking about, right? Would you call it that? Yeah, I would say, I mean, you know, we, we learn from our history, you know, and it's, Look, the, the, the goal, I think every director's goal should be to maximize their time with the actors because that is the one sort of volatile thing, right? That is the one thing that shifts take to take. That is the one thing that you can't predict. Even the greatest actors in the world aren't consistent take to take. And it's also where the magic happens to, to a large degree, you know? So, you know, David loves that line that it's not the time to take the takes, it takes the time. It's, it's the time between the takes, it takes the time, you know? I like and, that tongue twister. <laughs> and, and that's absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely true. You know, so if you can minimize the time between the takes and you can minimize the time without, without sacrificing the quality, um, you know, that should be our collective goal always is to, is to still be able to do our work. Not, um, you know, it's not about doing less work or doing less quality work. It's about be, doing that work more efficiently and more responsibly so that, we can spend the time in a, in uh, doing what it is we really need to do, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so think, you know, things like reducing the decision-making, you know, the set is a terrible place to make 
last minute decisions. Yeah. You know, it's the worst possible environment to make time pressure decisions. So, you know, you want to fix it in prep. You want to think about all those problems that are going to present themselves on the day and have contingency plans in place. And, um, and, and, you know, basically paint by numbers when you're there so that when the actors step on, you can spend as much time with them as, as, as you want to, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that should be the new, uh, catchphrase, not fix it in post, fix it in prep. Yeah. Yeah. We had that sign up in the production office. Oh, you did. Okay, good. In fact, I think that should be the title of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> fix it and prep yeah there's yeah. um because that right there that very simple expression like carries a lot of of um meaning to it and and has so many layers to it um there's really only like one other like technical question i i wanted to be sure i touched upon um before we end our conversation and that is about lenses because you know lenses are very important on every production but you guys are doing something kind of unique. You're using, you know, to the best of my knowledge, I, I know for sure last season you used like Leica Sumalux, which are basically as close to optically perfect as physics allows. And I think you used them again on this season. And and the look of the show, though, does not necessarily reflect that you're using those lenses. The, the bouquet looks spherical, but you have these beautiful, really beautiful anamorphic lens flares you have like barrel distortion on the wide shots and and like a bunch of other little vintage uh, lens artifacts. So how are you guys achieving that look and why are you making that choice when you can just use, you know, like the vintage lenses of the time period from, you know, when the show takes place? Well, you know, we we wanted the show to have a a quote unquote vintage feel. and I love vintage lenses and lenses with character in general. And I, you know, I think that that uh, can lead to really beautiful results. The problem is it often leads to um, results that you maybe don't want or can't control, um, particularly flares, veiling flare, secular flare, chromatic aberration. Um, and, and it's also very difficult to get sets of lenses, vintage lenses that match, you know, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, focal length to focal length. So, for example, you need two forty millimeter primes. You're not going to find two forty millimeter Cook Pancros that look the same, you know. Um, so, so we sort of in the beginning felt like, well, let's get the image perfect, and then we'll fuck it up later. Uh, okay. See, it all goes back to what David Fincher established as the like the guiding visual philosophy for the, for the show, which is start from perfect. So that extends to everything. Yeah. So we'll start from perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's universal, that concept. And, and, you know, and then we can art direct it, you know, then we can actually go in there. And, and that was, you know, a fantastic experience for me. I had never done that before. And we were in there with the visual effects artists and art directing the flares. Wow. And saying, God, I want to strike this a little bit more. Can we add a veiling flare here? You know, we're in the DI and we were sending the cuts back and forth and, you know, I'd send a note to David. I was like, I think we need some specular halation here. And, you know, and, and then we got into it and we started to, uh, Eric White, who's an incredibly gifted colorist, um, started to write all these Python scripts to generate chromatic aberration. Then we get chromatic aberration passes and we say, oh, well, I, I like chromatic aberration, but I don't like the magenta tint. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we, can we restrict it to violet and, and cyan? And then, so, you know, we, 
And those are those are things you don't get to do um, if you shoot with real vintage lenses. And sure, you can get similar effects, but it's very difficult to predict them, you know. Um, and we never wanted to be in a place where we had to accept something we didn't want. Right. Um, you know, uh, so we, you know, we took some anamorphic lenses and we, and we shot grids and we, and we, you know, we based the barrel distortion off of those, off of those existing, uh, lenses and, you know, and, and they had scripts and posts where they knew which focal lengths were shot. So Eric had different amounts of barrel distortion, depending on which focal length was used. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't just the shot is wide, if, you know, a 50 millimeter wide shot is, is, substantially different from a from a 21 millimeter wide shot you know and it should have different amounts of barrel distortion so we applied it differently um and same thing with grain you know we use grain extensively and we you know we art directed the grain so you know but all of that was done because we wanted to be able to control it and think about it uh with you know within the context of the cut too you know that's the other thing is you have you know it's within a set of of vintage lenses they can have drastically different characteristics lens to lens. Um, and that's not something you get, you know, in, in like a Similux. They're very consistently, they're very flat, they're very consistent lens to lens. So it's, you know, when we did the initial lens projections on that, you know, I, it's very difficult to tell whether you're on an 85 or a 29 when you look at the grid, you know, um, because they're both, both lenses are so, um, so spherical and so flat, you know. Yeah, they're very well corrected. Yeah. Very interesting. There are there are generations of cinematographers who are, you know, probably just like <laughs> rolling in their graves, jealous of your control of the image that you that you have the great fortune of <laughs> experiencing. That uh, that is something. I uh, I wonder if you know what you're talking about is kind of similar to what um, Steve Yedlin has been kind of like pioneering on his own. Uh, or, you know, as far as I know, it's on his own. I'm sure he's got people who are helping him. Um, as far as, like, starting from, like, a very high quality, as close to perfect, you know, image capture um, approach, and then introducing all of these different little artifacts and aberrations and, you know, really, like, creating the texture of an image and sculpting it um, afterwards. Have you guys spoken and like kind of collaborated in any way do you guys know each other to steve yeah i know steve yeah, yeah. i mean steve's yeah. amazing yeah he's amazing i i mean i yeah i agree with him uh you know in most cases i think uh you know cinematography these days is to a large degree um dragnet fishing you know <laughs> um you know we go out there and we capture as much of the image as we we can and then you know through lighting and exposure you know we control where we want to distribute the luminance values of the set. You know, if you want to get very esoteric and sort of, you know, scientific about it, but we, you know, we, we generally try to capture as wide a swath of the, of the, of the exposure range as we can. Um, so we're not giving up on shadow detail. We're not giving up on highlight detail um, more than we, more than we might want to, because the cameras these days uh their capture dynamic range still far exceeds the dynamic range of the display, you know, um, even in HDR. So, so yeah, you know, I think there's, I think there's a lot of truth to that, but, but you know, that's, but you have to keep in mind, it's, it doesn't mean we're doing it all in post. It just means that we are mindful of what we can do in post so that we're not spending production time doing things that might better be done 
later. Right. You know, I uh, like for example, I'm not I'm not a big fan of on-camera filtration because I don't like to modulate the wavelength hitting the sensor before I make my color correction choices. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I but but you know to each their own. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I think what Steve's done, particularly with his resolution tests and his and his color tests, is incredibly interesting and fascinating. I, I would love yeah. to work with him more on that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see you guys somehow collaborate or teach a master class in the future on on this kind of um, approach and making like the tools you guys are using like available to people. That'd be I don't know if if there's anything to that. That'd be something really interesting. I think. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. You know, we did a, a second season. We did a uh, we did a full HDR finish, and we we did it. We monitored an HDR on the set. It was all Ace's workflow, so we we kind of really refined that. Um, that pipeline and and it really I, it it really changed the way I work and you know for revolutionary for me. Wow, well that could be a whole conversation in itself, which we'll have to save for another time. But uh, that's really interesting to hear. I'm I, I can imagine you know there's so many benefits to that that once you try it you wouldn't you know ever want to <laughs> go back to anything less. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, so um, basically, yeah, the last question that I wanted to just you know, hear from you guys was, um, actually before, before I ask that, uh, Brian, I just had one like quick technical question about if, if there, you know, how you're achieving the shots you're doing on the fluid head. If there's any like tips or advice you can give to other operators about, you know, on the fluid head, how to achieve those very fluid, um, precise shots. I mean, obviously, you know, on Mindhunter, there's like post stabilization and there's, you know, things done on top of what you're doing, but you're still operating at a very like, you know, skilled level. Uh, are there any like tips or techniques that you're doing that, that others could, um, you know, could implement as well? Uh, I never, I never thought about that. Um, I, I, I not, I mean, I mean, not, not really. I, I think a, a lot of it is, is maybe obvious in that, you know, one thing I, I start with as good a head as I can get, I, I'm fussy about the piece of equipment. So if I feel like it's, you know, not a hundred percent, I will reject it. Uh, so, you know, make sure you have something good. I, in terms of the, the balance, you know, the counter, the, the counter spring, the fluid and whatnot, uh, th that's a little bit personal taste, but adjust it. You know, I, I happen to work at a very, very low fluid. I, I usually, that's just, that's just me. Uh, but usually the pan and tilt don't get set higher than one, uh, on a, on a scale of one to 10 on that head. Uh, I might on once in a while, maybe I'll go to one and a half. That's just me. Uh, and I, I, I guess I use a yeah. I've I've heard the exact opposite from other other operators who say they go like as as high as they can so that they have as much resistance as you know as comfortable for them. And and that's absolutely a good choice because it like evens out all of their little shakes and imperfections. I mean that's you know to it's it's very you know it's very selfish. It's very you know what works for you. For me. It, it's it's very I just want a very little bit so that the the, the moment I want to go and I'm talking down to the frame it feels like sometimes I need it to go I need it to be very responsive uh, but I use a very light touch 
so that's just how I do it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean it's right or wrong or, you know, I don't, somebody else would do it. Different. Well, it works for you. It does work. For me. Yeah. I mean, the point is it, it creates results, but the fact that other people, you know, get the, the results they're after using a completely opposite approach and you guys are both, uh, you know, operating at like the top of the craft as far as I think anybody would be concerned. Uh, I think that that just speaks to the fact that, you know, there aren't really rules about these things, even the things you think there should be a rule about, like how much resistance on a fluid head. That seems like something that would be, a, you know, because it's physics, right? It would lead to a certain result no matter what. Um, but, but you know, you're you're alluding to the fact that really it's it's you're doing you're doing a performance what you're doing, and you know you have you have to do it the way that it works for you. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It, it, there's no right or wrong here. It's just what, you know, how ultimately you just want to achieve success. So, you know, however, however you do it, you know, that's just what works for me. And, you know, Dwayne is very important to me how Dwayne moves the dolly. And, and we, we talk about that. And uh, the only other thing is I use the brakes a lot. My hand never leaves the brake on the fluid oh. so that when I can come, when I come to a stop, if we're moving on the dolly, I'll ease that brake on and off so that I can lock that frame or slow it down or, you know, so it really lands and stops. You know, maybe that's for me a small, yeah. but that's me. So. Yeah. That's a good technique. So when you're doing, when, when let's say the dolly's moving and you're kind of like back panning with it and then you feather in the pan and then you come to a perfect stop, you're at a low resistance and um, you are using the brake to kind of just like ease into it and then stop perfectly. Is that what you're doing? Yes, yeah, so, uh, sometimes. I mean, it, it depends. And then Eric, I don't know. I, I, do you think it's worth noting that I operate with the handle up? Yeah, probably because that's yeah. Yeah, gives you I, more leverage, I think right? So, because I can't operate like that, I always move it. I know I, it's amazing how Brian does it because he keeps he keeps his handle very short and it's up. Mm. Um, and one thing I learned from Brian was I always I now keep my my hand on the my left hand on the brake and and to some degree underneath the fluid head so I can sort of cradle the whole camera with my body, which you kind of do as well, Brian, right? Um, yes. So you're really becoming like one with it. Oh, absolutely. For, yeah, for Brian, for sure, right? I, I think it's also worth noting just more conceptually what separates operators like Brian apart from others is he's self-critical. And he looks at the shot. You know, no shot is ever perfect. Um, and, and he doesn't accept his work. Uh, and neither does Dwayne and neither did Will, you know, was always looking at playback, looking to see what could improve, looking to where there was a mistake and, you know, looking to where the, the, op, the, the actor's elbow left, left the frame by six pixels or whatever and saying, okay, well, I'm going to ask him to cut that corner a little tighter. I'm going to go a little wider on the pan as he comes around the table or whatever, you know, there was always room for improvement. And if you're not asking yourself those questions as an operator, um, you're probably leaving something on the table, you know, for sure. That's a great point. Well, um, my last question for you guys is um, about the show itself and your experience on it. What has been the most creatively rewarding part of working on Mindhunter? Well, it's, I mean, I, I, it's, for me, it's been incredibly important in my life for a lot of reasons. I mean, I met 
you know, I became lifelong friends with a lot of people, uh, Brian included. Um, you know, uh, it, it was an environment where I was able to do some of my best work, I think. And it was, I was encouraged to do so. And, and, um, and disciplined when I, when I didn't do good work, um, you know, uh, and, and I think it's, you know, it's one of those kind of rare unicorns where there was, everyone came together towards the same goal and, and, and was invested in it and, and came to work every day, endeavoring to do better and endeavoring to get better. And, you know, and, and, and it was a really creative, positive environment where people were just trying to succeed. And, you know, that's, that really doesn't happen that often. Um, certainly not at the level we were, we were shooting for, um, both technically and, and creatively, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I miss it terribly. I, I really, uh, I loved every day on that set. It was really, you know, inc- incredible for me. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, it's good to see the Emmys giving you uh, recognition for it and giving the show the recognition that it deserves. Yes. It, it feels really good. Yeah. Thank you. That was really, really uh, quite a surprise and a real honor. Well, certainly well-deserved. Brian, anything you wanted to uh, add about your experience of, of uh, Hunter and, and what you personally find, you know, like most gratifying from a creative perspective? Uh, I, I, th- I think what Eric said, I would, you know, I, I, I feel uh, very similar. You know, it's just your, the, 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 the standard of the show, uh, the standard you're working at, you just don't get the opportunity to do that very often. Where, where all pistons are firing and it, everything is working and you're, you're doing great filmmaking. That's really rewarding, gratifying, and just tremendous people. All, every, you know, all the people, just great people. Uh, so when you go to work, it's not miserable. It might be challenging. It might be hard. But that's different you know, then going in, it's just miserable and people are sniping each other and just, or they're competitive. You, you know, maybe that's a thing. It's like, there's a real sense of team and, you know, that, that, that comes down from the top and it flows through the set and you really feel like it, we're all trying to get this ball, you know, to the end zone. We're not trying to compete with each other and, and, and make each other look bad or, Hey, I, I did. And you're dropping them, but no, we're, we're all in this together and we're trying to do our best work every minute, uh, all day and, and make a great show. And I, it's, it's a good, it's a, it's a good show. I think it's fair to say it's a good show. And I hear, you know, you hear people like, Oh man, I, I love that show. Are they making another season? What's going on? You know, it's just so good. And, that's really, it's just, you know, it's nice. It's nice to hear. And, you know, I, I heard a compliment once, uh, uh, and this is a real testament to, I think, everybody's work, is, is uh, a friend said, you know, that show looks like it was shot in the 70s. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a good point. And I just thought that was a wonderful compliment to everybody's efforts. Uh, so things like that, you know, that those takeaways are they're nice. They really are. You don't, you don't have, you don't work on that many shows where, you know, everybody on the set wants to go watch daily and they come back and they, you know, they say, you know, the, the third grips and the, uh, on set dresser and the, and the prop people. And, you know, they're like, Oh, I watched daily. I saw what you guys were doing. Or I, 
I, you know, I saw what we did in the set and I, I was, I had this idea of how we could improve the backing or, or I saw that you were, how you were struggling with how to solve that problem. Maybe what if we did this, you know, there, there are not that many situations, at least in my life where you have that much investment on, on people, you know, really trying to make it better every day, you know? And it and it's really it's it makes it so much more fun. It comes through completely, and I would hope that you know, you would just carry that through onto everything you work on. You know, from now on, I'm sure you'll have many more experiences like that because you'll you know once you have that as the standard, you probably won't accept anything less. And you know, as the head of your department, you'll you know choose the people who will match that, and you'll kind of create that sort of a vibe. I can't imagine a more perfect way of working, you know? Yeah, we try, we try and fail as little as possible, you know? <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully no one tries to fail ever. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Well, beautiful work, guys. It has been a real pleasure to speak with you both. Congratulations again. And um, thank you for creating something that, you know, I've personally uh, gotten a lot of value from just watching and then even more now from speaking with you. This has been so fun to be able to do it with Brian. It's like I've done a couple of these before, but I've never been able to do it with Brian before. That's really great. Thank you. Yeah, I know you have. I thought it'd be really cool to have you guys both on, especially because I know you, Brian, from before. So I thought it'd be perfect. Yeah, yeah this is fun. I, I, it was very nice. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Art of the Shot podcast. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I'm excited to chat with the two of them again for David Fincher's upcoming film. Stay tuned for that. And if you're new to the show, I hope you decide to subscribe. And if you can, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a lot of work to make this show, and I do it all, so if you'd like to support me in keeping the show more regular, please consider donating directly through the link in this episode's description. Thank you so much, and stay tuned for the next episode, which happens to be the first one to explore a music video featuring a former guest of the show coming back here together with the director of the video. It's a good one. Mm -hmm.